This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. It was July 15, 1969, and outside the Kennedy Space Center in Cape Canaveral, Florida, a group of nearly 500 civil rights demonstrators had assembled. They stood there in protest of the Apollo 11 launch, which was scheduled for the next day. Two pack mules and a wooden wagon led the front of the procession. These were symbols of America's poverty, lending a stark contrast to the shining Saturn V rocket in the background. Other individuals carried signs with messages such as, $12 to feed an astronaut a day. We could feed a starving child for $8. A light drizzle fell as NASA's administrator Thomas Paine walked out of the Kennedy Space Center towards the crowd. Seeing him approach, the protesters, who were mostly black, began singing, We Shall Overcome, a civil rights anthem. Then, Baptist minister and activist Ralph Abernathy gave a small speech. He stated that one-fifth of America lacked proper food, housing, and medical care. He said that the country's priorities were severely imbalanced, declaring that NASA's funds would be better used to care for the poor. The microphone was then handed to Administrator Payne, who said, If we could solve the problems of poverty in the United States by not pushing the button to launch men to the moon tomorrow, then we would not push that button. Meaning, unless abandoning the launch would magically cure world hunger, NASA would wash its hands of responsibility and, of course, push the button. The following day, Apollo 11 lifted off from launch pad 39A. Of the many Americans observing the spectacle, roughly 24 million lived below the poverty line. They watched as the $355 million rocket blasted into the atmosphere and disappeared out of sight. This is The Dark Side Of, a ParCast original a show where we will delve into the seedy underbelly of pop culture icons and historical events. We aim to expose the ugly truth behind cultural moments and public figures we hold most dear. 
proving that there is always more to the story than meets the eye. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm Kate. This is our sixth episode on the dark side of space. While the quest to put a man on the moon and explore the great beyond has always been a trophy on the shelves of U.S. history, we're digging just a little deeper into what really happened to get there. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. You can find all episodes of The Dark Side Of and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream The Dark Side Of for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap browse, and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. Last week, we learned the history of catastrophic failures in space, proving that even our proudest accomplishments can easily go south. This week, we'll be digging into the costly decisions that have made U.S. space travel possible. We'll learn how policymakers decided to prioritize the space race over civil rights concerns, and later investigate the billions sunk into the Apollo program, even after it had fulfilled its initial purpose. We'll also probe the more recent efforts to continue the U.S. space program, proving that the same question rings true today as it did 70 years ago. Is going to space really the most humane use of our resources? Much of history is steeped in the adage, it's better to beg for forgiveness than to ask for permission. This is no less true in matters of U.S. government spending. The decision to explore space was born from the desires of the federal government, and it was funded as such. Even today, there's little apology for how the space race unfolded. Instead, it is reframed as a joint effort, an excursion made possible by democratic efficiency and public pride. But if the proof is in the pudding, taxpayer dollars were just one ingredient. The actual recipe was far more complex. Earlier this season, we discussed how the U.S. space program emerged from the Cold War paranoia surrounding Soviet nuclear weapons. But while widespread fear of a communist takeover may have ignited this era, it had no basis for continuing it. This was partly due to other more pressing concerns surrounding the everyday Americans, the most glaring of which was civil rights. The civil rights movement began in earnest during the mid-1950s. A new era was ushered in with landmark victories such as the 1954 Brown v. Board of Education case, which deemed segregated classrooms unconstitutional, and the Civil Rights Act of 1957, which strengthened Black voters' rights. In the meantime, the nuclear arms race was rapidly morphing into a space contest. In 1958, America's first human spaceflight program, Project Mercury, began. Before its end in 1963, Mercury would spend an estimated $277 million, nearly $2.3 billion by today's standards. In sharp contrast, an approximate 39 million, or 22%, of Americans lived in poverty in 1959. But rich or poor, the threat of nuclear obliteration weighed heavily on everyone's minds. As the space program emerged, few stopped to question the imperativeness of its dual motive. 
to intimidate Russia and to explore a new frontier for America. While neither of these was unequivocally linked to the nation's immediate security, America's space initiative charged forward at the insistence of politicians like Senator Lyndon B. Johnson, an early supporter of the space race. As Johnson ran for vice president during Kennedy's presidential campaign, the two built a dire portrait of America, warning that the country had fallen embarrassingly behind in the space race. This dismal picture was also somewhat dishonest. It painted over the fact that we were actually just second place in making the same accomplishments. But space exploration was not all the Kennedy-Johnson administration would be known for. At the 11th hour, mere weeks before the election, JFK became a symbol not only of the so-called new frontier, but of civil rights. As the story goes, Republican nominee Richard Nixon was poised to secure the black vote due to his support of the Civil Rights Act of 1957 and his friendship with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Then, on October 19, 1960, King was arrested for participating in a sit-in at a segregated lunch counter, a disruption that landed him in jail. News of Dr. King's arrest spread like wildfire and everyone waited to see the responses of America's two presidential candidates, Nixon and Kennedy. Fatefully, Nixon chose to go about his efforts quietly. He lobbied the Justice Department on his friend's behalf, but nothing ever came of it. Meanwhile, Kennedy's advisors urged him to take a more public approach by reaching out to Dr. King's wife, Coretta Scott. Kennedy made the sympathetic phone call while his brother Robert Kennedy phoned in a favor that brought about King's release. Naturally, this news circulated to the press and the American public. In the fallout, Kennedy received King's gratitude and 70% of black voters swung to his side in the election, giving him a crucial margin to beat Nixon. JFK now found himself at the center of two concurrent and exceedingly overlapping narratives, the fight for civil rights and the space race. It's important then to consider just how much these issues weighed on the minds of Black Americans. Following Alan Shepard's Mercury mission on May 5, 1961, America's leading Black newspaper, the New York Amsterdam News, published a front-page feature written by its editor, James Hicks. Hicks said that he, like many other Black Americans, had one undeniable thought. As soon as the excitement of Shepard's flight wore off, they wondered how many Black people had worked behind the scenes to help achieve it, and if they'd ever received credit for it. Hicks's question was valid. Despite his talk, JFK wasn't the most brazen advocate of civil rights. The president's approach was conflicted. While he appointed black members to government positions and enforced existing civil rights laws, he also didn't make any new ones. But by not taking a hard line against the growing problems of racism, JFK had to deal with it on a retroactive case-by-case basis. A telling example took place in May of 1961, when racist mobs in Alabama attacked buses full of freedom riders, black and white civil rights activists who were challenging segregated bus terminals. 
Kennedy responded by sending federal marshals to subdue the mobs. But this retroactive salve could not heal the violence that had already happened, much less prevent these riots from spreading across Alabama. On May 24th, Kennedy's brother, U.S. Attorney General Robert Kennedy, initiated a cooling-off period. He called for the activists to suspend their freedom rides. Even more, some accounts blamed everyone for the violence, saying there were extremists on both sides. This accusation infuriated civil rights groups. It insinuated that the freedom riders' peaceful actions had been unjustified. Moreover, it ignored the fact that the protesters themselves had not retaliated despite the violence against them. But rhetoric aside, the very timing of this announcement played into a very revealing scene about America's priorities. On May 25th, the very next day after Robert Kennedy's proclamation, President John F. Kennedy stood before Congress and introduced the Moon Mission. America's politicians were clearly juggling what they deemed to be two separate priorities, and the space race took obvious precedence. Despite the exciting announcement, America itself seemed to be torn. Polls from June of 1961 showed an equal split between those citizens for and against a government-funded, and therefore taxpayer-funded, moon landing program. Even Kennedy's priorities were not so much about space travel as they were about making good on his campaign promise. In a now-famous 1962 meeting with NASA Administrator James Webb, JFK stated rather bluntly why he kept pushing to go to space. Kennedy said, I'm not that interested in space. I think it's good. I think we ought to know about it. We're ready to spend reasonable amounts of money. But we're talking about these fantastic expenditures which wreck our budget. In my opinion, to do it in this time or fashion is because we hope to beat them. Them, of course, being the Soviet Union. This beat Russia sentiment was the lifeblood of the Apollo program. Administrator Webb of NASA shrewdly recognized the importance of securing the budget-wrecking funding up front. It would take nearly a decade to reach the finish line. With Congress's enthusiasm apt to wane and the future of party control to be seen, he needed enough money to weather these possible changes. So Webb immediately set about naming a budget estimate that would be sure to carry Apollo through the rest of the decade. $20 billion. That's over $173 billion by today's standards, and that was just for Project Apollo. The end numbers remain to be seen, as NASA, like many government programs, would have to lobby for their funding every fiscal year. By 1963, Webb had upped his initial estimate for the entire project from $20 billion to $35 billion. Using his insider experience as former director of the Bureau of the Budget and his political friendships, Webb managed to pull all kinds of strings during his tenure at NASA. Whenever this didn't work, he could always fall back on the firm support of now-President Lyndon B. Johnson. By 1965, NASA's budget had hit its peak, spending $5.2 billion in a single year, 
an amount equal to nearly $43 billion by today's standards, and enough to comprise 5.3% of the federal budget at the time. To put this in perspective, from 1975 onward, NASA constituted about 1% of this reserve. And since the mid-90s, NASA has been responsible for around 0.5% of federal spending, one-tenth of what it had been during its Apollo heyday. During the project's official 11-year span, nearly 50% of NASA's yearly budgets were funneled directly into the Apollo Human Spaceflight Program, while its peripheral projects, in one way or another, were still intended to help further the Apollo goal. But as year after year of exorbitant funding rolled by, the public began to raise eyebrows. Clearly, nuclear obliteration was not the central concern. Beating Russia at space technology was. And if so, was it really worth the cost, especially with such an ill-defined time frame? As the Apollo program went through a series of very expensive dress rehearsals leading up to the eventual 1969 launch, quiet skepticism threatened to become public ire. Up next, the moon landing racks up an excruciating bill for taxpayers. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some... The gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now, back to our story. By 1966, the U.S. government had sunk billions of dollars into NASA's five-year-old moon mission, Project Apollo. It was their desperate attempt to secure one space victory over the USSR. The fear of nuclear attack from Russia was already subsiding, but NASA and the politicians backing it obstinately raced toward the lunar finish line. Their message was still one of national pride, especially in homage to the late President John F. Kennedy, who had set the plan in motion. America had to finish first. To do so, NASA had established a $60 million headquarters known as the Manned Spacecraft Center in Houston, Texas. This expenditure alone was worth over $500 million in today's standards, and the federally funded agency ballooned to fill it. NASA's staff had more than tripled from 10,000 employees in 1960 to 36,000 in 1966. Keep in mind, this didn't include outside help. 36,500 independent contractors in 1960 exploded to nearly 377,000 in 1965, a tenfold increase. But despite this strange and vast new job market, Public support wasn't as fervent as it had been going into the 60s, when nuclear war still seemed imminent. America had proven it could do everything Russia had done, besides putting a woman in orbit. And for many people, this was good enough. Yet in 1966, space race diehard President Lyndon B. Johnson proposed a $5 billion budget for 1968 alone. Like Kennedy, 
He was determined to see America reach the moon first, and he hoped additional victories would follow. As an indication, Johnson requested an additional $455 million budget from Congress for post-Apollo goals, such as a Mars mission or an Earth-orbiting space station. This was an ask of wildest dreams proportions, so Congress responded accordingly, appointing a fractional $122 million towards the future of Apollo. But already, the future was clear. The big guns at NASA were ready to stretch Project Apollo for all it was worth, to the moon landing and beyond. Deputy Director of the Manned Spacecraft Center, George Trimble, was one of the few NASA officials to heed the declining temperature of both Congress and the public. In August of 1966, he wrote a warning letter to Samuel Phillips, director of the Apollo program. Trimble urged Phillips to make the moon landing the decisive end of the Apollo program. Better to leave on a high note than to be forced out. But Phillips ignored him, and five months later, Project Apollo faced its biggest blow. On January 27, 1967, Apollo 1 caught fire during a launch simulation. All three Apollo astronauts trapped inside were immediately killed. The event traumatized NASA and horrified the American public. Following the disaster, a poll revealed that over half of respondents were against Project Apollo. And this wasn't the only bone the public had to pick. America was also engaged in an expensive war in Vietnam, a proxy battle with Russia that would rack up $168 billion, an equivalent of $1 trillion by today's standards. And for the first time in memorable history, Americans weren't rallying to support a war. From 1965 to 1969, public approval of the Vietnam War would shrink from 64% to 39%. This anti-war sentiment mushroomed alongside the civil rights movement. There was no denying the widespread feeling that America was losing focus on its real problems. Racism and the economy. By summer of 1967, the U.S. had hit a federal budget crisis due to a $29 billion deficit from Vietnam. And Washington wasn't the only area of suffering. In the late 60s, 24 million Americans still lived below the poverty line. One third of these families were black. While the crux of the civil rights movement was justice, poverty and employment were inextricable parts of the conversation. Martin Luther King Jr. was at the center of this as he geared up for his 1968 Poor People's Campaign to protest government spending. Meanwhile, President Johnson himself had instigated further change with his administration's War on Poverty Initiative, which increased food stamps and created programs such as Medicare and Medicaid. But as Americans witnessed the vast sums being spent on Vietnam and the space race, many felt that more could yet be done. The richest country in the world wasn't focusing its wealth on its own issues, problems it was otherwise well-equipped to solve. Instead, the pain was being drawn out unnecessarily. For the average citizen, especially someone below the poverty line, 
space trophies were a luxury that America had no business pursuing. This was evidenced by the polls from that year. A dwindling 34% of the public still approved of the moon mission. Neil Marr, author of Apollo in the Age of Aquarius, considered the debate about what America really was at that moment. He said, Was it a country to spend $20 billion to land two men on a dead rock in space or try to solve some of the problems closer to home on Earth? This remained to be seen, but the winds of change blew harder as 1968 rolled around. That year, Democratic President Johnson chose not to run for re-election. Republican Richard Nixon instead won, largely due to his Southern strategy in which he catered to white Southerners who had been upset by the progress of Black Americans during the 60s. If ever there was a thermometer for taking America's temperature, this was it. The civil rights movement was still miles away from reshaping U.S. politics. Unfortunately for NASA, the change of hands at the White House didn't fare well for them either. Alongside Johnson's departure, NASA's administrator, the bullheaded smooth talker James Webb, also stepped down. Newspapers said Webb resented the persistent budget cuts made by the Johnson administration to fund the Vietnam War. Webb would deny this rationale, yet his own words alluded to it. He said, By resigning, I could at least show them that it wasn't child's play what the nation was trying to do with these big rockets. Webb had worked tirelessly to pump funding into Project Apollo. Now, his and Johnson's retirements marked the beginning of the end, even as Apollo 11 geared up to take flight. In the days surrounding Apollo 11's launch, the New York Times spoke to Victoria Mayers, head of a poverty program in Saginaw, Michigan. Mayors criticized the government's spending on Apollo, comparing it to a man who has a large family. They have no shoes, no clothing, no food, and the rent is overdue. But when he gets paid, he runs out and buys himself a set of electric trains. In that same article, Roy Wilkins of the NAACP, a civil rights organization, called the moon mission a cause for shame. Black newspapers published cartoons and features attacking the forthcoming launch. But NASA, sequestered away in its labs and factories, had the luxury of turning a blind eye. The moon mission charged full speed ahead. In 1969, over 45% of America's poor citizens lived in the South, which was also home to several NASA facilities, including the Kennedy Space Center in Cape Canaveral, Florida. Apollo 11 was scheduled to launch from the Space Center on July 16, 1969. This was roughly 15 months after the hateful assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. in Memphis, Tennessee, an event which showed America in no uncertain terms just how crucial the issues of racism and poverty were. In the days leading up to Apollo's launch, a group of about 500 Americans, most of them black, assembled to protest the Apollo 11 launch. On July 15th, NASA's recently appointed administrator, Thomas Paine, personally greeted the protesters and listened to their concerns. 
Ralph Abernathy, a close friend of Dr. King and another figurehead of the civil rights movement, gave a speech. He condemned the U.S. for funding space travel when so many people lived in poverty. Then, he laid out a list of three requests for NASA. First, he wanted them to support the movement to combat the nation's poverty, hunger, and other social problems. He also wanted them to work to alleviate the issue of hunger in America. And lastly, he requested that 10 families from his group be given access to view the launch. Payne gladly acquiesced to this last favor, conveniently the easiest. He also expressed sympathy for the prior requests. He said he hoped Abernathy would, quote, hitch his wagons to our rocket, using the space program as a spur to the nation to tackle problems boldly in other areas. It was a bizarre response, given that NASA was arguably distracting government attention from these other problems. But in the end, the men shook hands. Payne was even given a small necklace in the form of a hangman's noose. It said, I helped hang poverty. Apollo 11, of course, took off the next day, July 16th, on a successful trip to the moon. The cost of the Apollo 11 mission alone was $355 million, equivalent to around $3 billion today. The command service module accounted for $463 million by today's standards, and the humble lunar module was worth a gratuitous $337 million. All in all, Project Apollo required 400,000 personnel working inside and outside of NASA, and the operations cost of this mission alone was worth an equivalent of $28 billion today. The most expensive part, however, was also the most expendable. Apollo 11 Saturn V rocket, which would be entirely used and discarded during the mission, was worth a whopping $1.3 billion by today's standards. By the time Apollo 11 lifted into space, all this money was as good as spent. The only thing left to do was dole out paychecks. Apollo astronauts earned between $17,000 and $20,000 a year, equivalent to a salary of $120,000 today. Clearly, the mission was its own reward, considering that news anchors speculating on the mission were earning more than their galaxy-bound peers. On July 27, 1969, less than a week after the astronauts' safe return to Earth, a New York Times headline read, Blacks and Apollo. Most couldn't have cared less. In reality, the attitude wasn't one of apathy, but discouragement. The New York Amsterdam News, America's leading black newspaper, ran a succinct headline that said, Yesterday the moon, tomorrow maybe us. Still, four months later, Apollo 12 set off on yet another mission to the moon in November of 1969. This mission hardly differed from the first. Nonetheless, like any sensational cultural event, the moon landings had their day in the sun. Many Americans experienced a deep sense of pride at these accomplishments. But their enthusiasm would soon wear off, and one event nearly erased it. On April 11th, 1970, Apollo 13 set off on a harrowing journey. 
While en route, the flight experienced an oxygen tank failure. The crew had to abort their mission and fight to make it back to Earth just before they lost air. The public fascination surrounding this mission was nothing short of telling. It was arguably the most closely watched of all the Apollo flights, signaling a macabre and very human fascination with danger. But for many Americans, it also confirmed their suspicion. Space was extremely dangerous. Not a place to play with money that was desperately needed elsewhere. In 1970, poet and musician Gil Scott Heron released his spoken word ballad, Whitey on the Moon. The lyrics criticized space travel, juxtaposing his inability to pay the bills with the moon landings. Scott Heron wasn't the only one to see that Project Apollo needed to end. In a 1970 interview, pivotal NASA figure Werner von Braun admitted Apollo had outstayed its welcome. He said, the legacy of Apollo has spoiled the people at NASA. They believe that we are entitled to this kind of a thing forever, which I gravely doubt. An honest observation from a former Nazi, no less. Up next, NASA stubbornly refuses to pull the plug on Apollo. Now back to the story. By the early 70s, the U.S. had just tucked the first and second Apollo moon landings under its belt. Nixon took to the Oval Office as president in January of 1969, just in time for Apollo 11's seminal voyage. His eyes were set on foreign policy success, and he was sure to paint the moon landing in this light, one of human progress. Not once did Nixon mention President Kennedy's name in connection with Project Apollo. He had made the victory his own, and he had very specific ideas on how to move forward, ones that didn't necessarily bode well for Apollo. Prior to Nixon, NASA believed that Project Apollo's continuation was a given. For one, the U.S. had already spent and committed to a rough total of $25 billion dollars. Not that it was trying to rest on its laurels, but the space agency was sure these investments amounted to something for the future of space exploration. NASA was also several years deep in researching an Apollo Applications Program, an indefinite extension of the moon missions. They envisioned base camps on the moon, geological drills, and bunny hop trips to Mars. But with the failure of Apollo 13 and the pressure of the war in Vietnam, Congress and President Nixon were increasingly turning their backs on NASA's fantasies. According to Professor John Logsdon, a space historian and member of the Planetary Society, President Nixon instituted a space policy that remains with NASA until this day. Unlike his predecessors, he treated NASA like a factor of domestic policy, not a privileged entity. By 1971, NASA accounted for 2% of America's national budget. This was 3% less than NASA had accrued during its 1965 funding peak. But it was still a substantial amount, considering the cost of the Vietnam War and the actual superfluousness of visits to the moon. Nonetheless, for the first time in a long time, Washington was beginning to understand the public's view of NASA. 
many Americans, especially the civil rights movement, hadn't changed their initial stance against Project Apollo's funding. They firmly believed the money would be better spent on issues of poverty and black employment. When Apollo 14 lifted off on January 31, 1971, 200 black protesters from the Southern Christian Leadership Conference marched on Cape Canaveral in protest. One of them observed, America is sending lazy white boys to the moon because all they're doing is looking for moon rocks. He said that if there was actual work to be done, the U.S. would have sent a black person. By now, NASA was scrambling to ensure that they would be able to fund numbers 16 and 17 of their initial 20-mission trajectory. Lucky for them, there were still a few politicians on the outside who refused to believe the age of Apollo was through. In the summer of 1971, Casper Weinberger, the U.S. Deputy Director of the Office of Management and Budget, went to bat for NASA. In a poignant letter to Nixon, he urged the president to skim funding from elsewhere in order to support the space agency. He complained that NASA's budget was being cut merely because it was cuttable. Easing off on space exploration, he warned, would show that America's best years were over. This reason was insipid at best, but it was nowhere near as revealing as one particular point Weinberger made. He wrote, We are being driven to spend more and more on programs that offer no real hope for the future. Model cities, welfare, interest on the national debt, unemployment compensation, Medicare, etc. This shocking dismissal of everyday Americans was almost as shocking as the lack of responsibility Weinberger used to shore up his point. He went on to say, Of course, some of these have to be continued, in one form or another, but essentially they are programs not of our choice, designed to repair mistakes of the past, not of our making. Like the politicians before him, Casper Weinberger was a trophy-minded space enthusiast. He was willing to forego America's imminent needs for the sake of its reputation. And he wasn't alone in his fantasies. When the memo ran across Nixon's desk, the president himself was inspired. He wrote a simple note saying, I agree with Cap. Nonetheless, the U.S. was between a rock and a hard place. Billions of dollars continued to be spent on the war in Vietnam every month. With so much money being hemorrhaged overseas, outer space was forced to take a back seat. By August of 1970, NASA's administrator Thomas Paine knew he had to make a choice. At this point, the Apollo Applications Program for a reusable space shuttle program was morphing into a project known as Skylab. Paine was determined to save it at all costs. On September 2, 1970, he announced that Apollo 17 would be the final flight of the Apollo program. Two years later, on December 7, 1972, Apollo 17 set out for a final lunar voyage. This journey remains the last time a crewed mission has ever been to the moon. Astronaut Gene Cernan from Chicago, Illinois, is the last human to have set foot on the gray, chalky soil. 
Yet at the time of this mission, 60% of the American public still believed too much money was being spent on NASA, despite the budget restrictions that had driven Apollo to its end. Their disgust was hardly misguided. Efforts for Project Apollo had cost American taxpayers $25.8 billion since 1960 until it tied loose ends in 1973. This might sound small, but when adjusted for inflation, Project Apollo would cost roughly $283.8 billion today. The numbers don't end there, though. When factoring in gross domestic product, which calculates the worth of finished goods in today's overall economic context, Project Apollo would cost roughly $641 billion. Financial site Money.com goes on to break down this outrageous cost even further, stating that $641.4 billion is the approximate value of America's annual defense budget. It could even buy an average-priced home for all of America's homeless population of roughly 550,000 people, with a few billion dollars to spare. But even with its decreasing funds, NASA didn't simply throw in the towel. In May of 1973, NASA launched Skylab, the first U.S. space station. Fortunately, at $2.2 billion, this initiative cost far less than its nearly $26 billion Apollo predecessor. This was partly because it used hand-me-down hardware from Project Apollo. However, Skylab would become a massive headache for the rapidly defunded space agency, and once again, the public. By 1978, atmospheric drag had caused the station's orbit to draw closer to Earth. The 77-ton space station was now just months from a random crashdown. Across America, people wore T-shirts with bullseyes printed on them symbolizing that Skylab could fall on their heads at any second. A local hotel in Charlotte, North Carolina, even painted itself with a target, calling itself the official Skylab crash zone and inviting patrons to disco their last minutes away. In the end, NASA engineers waited until the space station was in a prime position above the Indian Ocean. Then they triggered the station's booster rockets, hoping it would come in for a water landing. It did, sort of. While large chunks landed in the Indian Ocean, parts of Western Australia were graced with debris fallout. The town of Esperance even issued a $400 fine to the United States for littering, which the U.S. ignored for years until a California radio station took a membership collection to pay the debt. NASA ran other tests during the 1970s, including the notable Apollo-Soyuz test project. On the morning of July 15, 1975, a Russian Soyuz vehicle launched into orbit. Hours later, an Apollo craft left from the U.S. The two vehicles met in space on a pleasant rendezvous that included science experiments, the exchange of gifts, and speeches. It was a $245 million piece of publicity for two countries who had been at each other's throats just years earlier and who were still otherwise engaged in a Cold War. Today, this project would cost just shy of $1.2 billion, 
not nothing. But this was still nowhere near the concurrent cost being racked up on NASA's favorite initiative of all time since Apollo, the Space Shuttle. From its official kickoff in 1972 to its last voyage in 2011, the Space Shuttle program would cost upwards of $251 billion in today's money. In the end, this project was shut down. The shuttles had failed in their essential mission to actually save NASA money, not to mention losing 14 lives during two of its 134 flights, as discussed in a previous episode. But body counts and flight tallies aside, Project Apollo remains NASA's most expensive venture and the one to cause the most outrage. If this seems overstated, simply look at the number of people who were still unhappy about the moon landing 10 years after it had taken place. In 1979, polls showed that only 47% of the public approved of the mission. Clearly, the resentment had not worn off. But time has a way of healing all wounds, or at least making them look better. By 1989, 77% of the American public, roughly two in three, thought the moon landing was worth it. Nowadays, we look back at the anniversary of July 16, 1969, with a sort of fondness, a glamorized remembrance of patriotic times gone by. The old jargon has even come back in recent decades. In 2004, President George W. Bush announced the Vision for Space Exploration Initiative. The goal was to explore other parts of the solar system and return more humans to the moon. Then, in 2010, President Barack Obama picked up the baton, changing the Vision for Space Exploration Initiative into the slightly less catchy space policy of the Barack Obama administration. Obama pledged to increase NASA's funds by $6 billion over the course of five years. And he even endorsed a proposal to send more humans to the moon by 2020. A committee organized by the Obama administration laid out various options. The moon first route, which would begin by placing yet another human on the moon. Or the flexible path, which would travel to other destinations, such as the moons of Mars. Both had the same end goal in mind, reviving the Apollo dream, if you will, but this time to land on Mars. But even as this goal lingers on the horizon, we are faced with what now seems like a timeless question. Is it worth it? As satellites beam back images of Earth, showing the effects of climate change, we would do well to remember a time when space was considered more important than suffering when it symbolized for many the conscious neglect of a less exciting but far more humane frontier. The era of Apollo and civil rights may be over, but other challenges remain. Join us next week as we examine the environmental costs of space. You can find more episodes of The Dark Side Of for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. Just open the app and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast 
and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. The Dark Side Of was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Brendan Hawkins, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of The Dark Side Of was written by Allie Wicker, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rosner.